Thank you, Chip, and uh, good morning, everyone. I bring uh, great greetings from, uh, from Manchester and everyone at City Church. Um, my wife, Jackie, and my son, Reuben, uh, were disappointed not to be able to make this trip. Uh, when we visited Macon a number of years ago on my sabbatical, uh, it was one of the highlights of our trip. The, the warmth, the welcome, the hospitality has always been something that has been a real uh, joy for me personally and for my family. Of course, we've enjoyed over the last few days together of this missions conference the privilege of talking about world mission. Uh, and that has been a wonderful thing to share with you and hear stories about what's been going on through the work of the Lord right across the world. Of course, many of uh, my friends in England think I've just come to America for a holiday to participate in the Super Bowl celebrations. <laughs> it's going to be very difficult to persuade them otherwise. But we've been going through the book of Jonah, so let me read to you now. Uh, Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that it is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. It's a striking passage. Many of us may well be familiar with the book of Jonah. Uh, and there's two significant points that I want to bring to us this morning. And the first one's this, the radical content of the message, the radical content of the message. Well, so far in the story of Jonah, God has called Jonah, a prophet, to go to Nineveh to tell them to repent before it's too late. And God brings startling judgment upon the Ninevites. Jonah refused, ran away, and ended up being thrown overboard, swallowed by a great fish, where we heard over the course of the weekend so far that he then realized something significant about God's mercy and kindness. And God called him again to go to Nineveh 
and the fish spat him up, and he went. And that brings us to where we are this morning in chapter 3. And so Nineveh is a great city of the ancient world. We're told it takes three days to get from one side of the city to another, uh, and we're told that Jonah walks a day in order to get into the city. Most likely what's happening is Jonah is walking from the edge of the city to the cultural, political, economic heart of Nineveh. It'd be a bit like walking from um, the uh, Hartsfield-Jackson Airport in Atlanta to the town hall. You're going from the outskirts to the very center where everything's happening. And when he gets there, he delivers his message. Justin uh, told me that it's uh, likely to be the shortest sermon in all of the Bible. If you're hoping for something very similar this morning, you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> we don't have the full transcript of his message, but in verse 4, we do have the summary. And in colloquial words, let me paraphrase, it's this, the countdown to justice has begun. Now, the 21st century reader struggles with this message because it feels outdated, doesn't it? Here we go again, Christians shouting about judgment again. It's not a heartwarming message. It's not the type of message that you would put in your, your Christmas cards or your Easter cards, is it? But if you are a victim of injustice, or you are vulnerable to the abuse of the violent, then this message is exactly what you want to hear. Because this message precisely means that things are going to change. Ask the women in Afghanistan who are destroying their degrees and diplomas before they're caught by the Taliban. Ask them whether things should change. Ask the parents who put their children on trafficking boats because the people they fear are more terrifying than the waves. Ask them whether something needs to change. Or ask Bethany, JR, or Jan, if the idea of justice being done in the communities that they work in is good news. You see, it is only those who feel in control of their ambitions, desires, or longings, who have no interest in things changing. And if that's you or I, then that puts us in the minority, the 5% of our planet's population. The problem is, though, when God intervenes to bring justice, he is always fair, which means that everyone is included in that. And he is always thorough, which means every injustice, big or small, will always receive its due penalty. Which means if you are a Ninevite, and you believe that the God of all creation has begun a 40-day countdown before he treats everyone as they truly deserve, well, that is truly terrifying. Now, for us 
regardless of who we are, regardless of how God has asked us to live, we know, don't we, that it's almost impossible for us to live consistently with our own rules of life. And, and my guess is, if you're like me, you get mad with other people for doing the same things that we do secretly ourselves. The idea of justice coming, the countdown starting, is terrifying for all of us. Well, look with me at verse 5 of our passage. We're told that the countdown has started in the great city of Nineveh. The message goes viral and the city is thrown into great panic. But the question has to be for us, why did they believe him? Why did they respond so fully to this very controversial, unpopular message? Well, we don't know for sure, but as you will have heard if you'd been part of the, uh, the talks earlier on, the goddess of Nineveh was a idol called Ishtar. And she was formed in the shape of a great fish. And so there's likelihood that when the story goes out that this man Jonah had been swallowed by a great fish, but his God was powerful, powerful enough to rescue him from the fish, to spit him out safe and sound on the shore, it would have been a clear sign to many of the people that the God of Jonah was infinitely more powerful than the goddess of Nineveh. So you can imagine the panic in the city, schools shut, supermarket shelves emptying, shortages of supplies, office blocks empty. Everyone is at home, desperate to connect with family and friends, trying to make sense of the crisis situation that they find themselves in. Well, think about it like this. If you knew you only had 40 days before your world turned upside down, well, what would you do? Well, here's the thing. That is not a hypothetical scenario for, for us as believers. For the Bible teaches us that the countdown for Nineveh was only ever a great dress rehearsal for the great coming day of justice that God would bring for the whole world. It was only a dress rehearsal in the book of Jonah. That one day, a moment will happen where we will all stop saying, if God really cared, then he would interrupt the world and do something about it. Because on that day, he won't just deal with surface issues like resolving poverty or genocide, but he will go to the root and he will bring justice to those guilty of greed, selfishness, and failing to love their neighbor as themselves. So let me ask you that question. If you knew today that the countdown to that great day of justice had already started, what would you do differently? Now, you may well be thinking, well, if only we had someone like Jonah that we could uh, parade through the streets, perhaps on Cherry Tree or, or First, or perhaps 
at the halftime interval at the Super Bowl, who everyone could see, this is a clear indication that the countdown has really, really started, wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that be incredible if everyone started to believe the message? Well, actually, we already have that. We already have that. Yesterday, we saw that Jesus replies to a request for a great sign. And in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, Jesus' reply for this request of a great sign was to say, no, the only sign that you need, the only evidence that you need that the great countdown has already begun is a man would be killed on a Roman cross and then he would be raised three days later from the dead. That is the sign. Now, of course, he's talking about his own resurrection. And he's saying to those who would ask for a sign, I am the sign that the countdown has begun. My empty tomb is the reason that you should take this seriously and that you should interrupt your life. And it means this, if you ignore the resurrection, you will also ignore the countdown. The resurrection, the resurrection is actually a powerful tool that we need to remember when it comes to world mission, when it comes to sharing the gospel with our communities and those across the world. You see, in the early church, the, the headline takeaway from the very first sermons was Jesus is king of the world and he is not dead. Think about it like this. Every major civilization, every major religion has a central grave where their great leader is buried. And followers have always turned to, to that grave as a great shrine for subsequent generations to flock in their thousands. The French have Napoleon, the British have Churchill. Buddhists go to the shrine of Buddha and Muslims go to the shrine of Muhammad. But Christianity has no grave. Why? Because Jesus' followers have always been convinced that he did not stay dead. What moved a terrified bunch of fishermen disciples that are described absolutely scared at the end of Mark's gospel into a mobilized bunch of evangelists who would choose to die for their faith? Well, they were simply convinced that Jesus is no longer dead. But Jesus himself, in his own words, describes it far more bluntly in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41. He says this, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. In other words, if you truly believe that Jesus is not dead, then you must accept that every one of us is on the clock. And if you're on the clock, if the countdown has begun, what different choices will you make today? So if the first point is the radical content of the message, then our, our second and final point is the radical response to the message. 
Come with me to verse 6 in our passage. The message we see reaches the king of Nineveh, and he's so convinced that he calls a press conference to address the city. You could imagine the, uh, the, the scene, the podium is in the middle, microphones all over it, the big state crest, the national emblem on the front, not an eagle but a fish. Graphs are shown 40 days along the bottom, tracing the likelihood of total disaster up the side. And the king delivers the message to the people, stay home, cry out for mercy, protect the city. Another way of putting it is this. Interrupt your routine. Interrupt your prayer life. Interrupt your self-protection. Now, as, as we've mentioned, the, the, the justice heading towards Nineveh was only a shadow of the great day of judgment to come. But the response to this press conference in Nineveh is very relevant to us today. I, I guess the first application would be for us to interrupt your routine. Look with me at verse 7. The instruction is don't even feed the cattle. In other words... Stop the economy. Now, for us, the application, in the light of God's coming day of judgment, I, I think is this. Don't get sucked. Don't get sucked into the normality of life. L let me ask you this question. If the countdown has begun, who do you need to speak to about the warning and hope of the gospel before time runs out? Isn't that a question for us this morning? Who do you know that when the heavenly buzzer sounds would have a point if they looked at you and they said, look, we've sat next to each other in the same office for three years, or we've been neighbours for the last five years, and you didn't even tell me that you were a Christian? It's easy for us all, isn't it, with the busyness of life to remain on the very fringes of world mission. But if the countdown has truly begun, doesn't it make sense to sign up for being involved in the great lifeboat to the world? After all, put it this way, if you were on the Titanic and you were convinced that at some point it would hit an iceberg, would you not prioritize your friends and family spending the evening with you beside the boats. Would, would, would you not do that? Family, we're camping by the lifeboats tonight. Just trust me. What I mean is this. If the countdown has truly started, wouldn't you want those who you loved to know by your behavior, by your conduct, by what you did with your resources, that a countdown has already started and the eternities of our family, friends, and our fellow citizens of the world depend upon not ignoring it. If the countdown has begun, doesn't it make sense to stop putting off that, do you know, I'm going to think about joining that mission team. Or I'm going to think one day when I get a moment to support that mission. Or I'm, I'm going to think about praying every day for that mission. Actually, if the countdown has begun, I, I think we actually need to do it. 
Number two, the, the, the second thing that the king said to the nation was interrupt your prayer life. You see, the mark of someone who knows that the countdown has begun, well, in verse 8, you can see that actually they need to call out to God. The prayer life of someone who knows the countdown has begun means their prayer life isn't simply a Christmas list of personal blessings, requests just for them and, and their family. It will be punctuated by crying out to the Lord for mercy on friends and family and neighbours and communities that don't know Christ. And thirdly, the message was to interrupt your self-protection. Look at the second half of verse 8 with me. The king tells them, let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Now, violence is common throughout the world, but very few people engage in violence because they enjoy it, but rather they engage in violence as a form of self-protection. Injuring others often has benefit for yourself. The instruction here is perhaps most intuitive in that if God is absolutely mad about injustice in the world, then the king of Nineveh's instruction is, well, then stop doing it. Now, I appreciate uh, all of us on a fine morning like this would not consider ourselves in church to be violent people. But ask yourself this. Who have you pushed down? or ignored, or disadvantaged in whatever politely violent way so that you could benefit. You see, on a weekend of world mission, it is not right just to think of the problem out there. We first have to appreciate the problem here with us. And I guess the mystery then, as we come to the end of this passage, is did it actually work? Did the city achieve what you might call a moral herd immunity? Well, look with me at verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. Well, is the takeaway from this that we just need to work harder to interrupt our lives, our prayer lives, our moral lives? Well, actually, no. Nineveh was just a temporary picture. I wonder how long they kept this up. I wonder how long they lived in this way before they just returned back to their old way of life. Was it until Monday morning's inbox sucks you into conformity with the world? Is it until your kids come back from their groups and make you angry? Is it until you start ignoring God again? distracted by the pleasures of this world. Well, actually, the same sign that tells you that this radical message is real is the same sign that will enable you to respond in a radical way to it. What do I mean? Well, Jesus Christ was interrupted in every way that matters to us. As the Son of God, his interruption was so great that he chose to leave the comfort and safety of heaven to take on flesh to live the perfect life. As he took the penalty for your sin and mine, his perfect connection with his heavenly father was temporarily interrupted to the level where he cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He willingly allowed his instinct for self 
protection to be utterly interrupted as he was publicly humiliated and hung on a Roman tree. Also that you and I would never have to fear the countdown because every one of our injustices have been paid in full. Because of Jesus, for us today, if you are a believer, the countdown holds no fear. Let me finish with this story. Back in the, um, the tragedy of 9-11 and the attacks, a woman called Janelle Guzman was trapped beneath the wreckage of concrete and twisted steel. She was 27 hours in the rubble and it completely transformed her life. In her prayers, as she lay there entombed in this crevice of concrete, she pleaded that God would rescue her, and she vowed that she would change her life if she lived. And then around 9.15am on September the 12th, her first prayer was answered in the form of strong hand came down through the rubble and took hers. When she was finally discharged six weeks later, Guzman set out immediately to honour the promises that she had made to God. She knew she couldn't go back. She took her boyfriend of some years right down to the, uh, the marriage office and they got married there and then. She then went to the local church to ask the pastor if she could be baptised. You see, she couldn't go back. She then devoted her life from that moment on to being a missionary, to sharing with others how Jesus had saved her. You see, you and I couldn't respond radically to this message of the gospel just by ourselves, but when we see how he was willing to be interrupted, so for us the great countdown would never hold any fear, then for us everything changes. You see, if that's true, you can't go back to chasing a career as a means of finding meaning in your life. You can't go back to a prayer life only focused on yourself and your family, can you? You can't go back to avoiding personal risk as if the only life worth living is one where your plans are uninterrupted. You can't go back. If the resurrection is real, if the countdown has started, well then the one big lesson from the book of Jonah is this. If you have no place in your faith for God to interrupt you and your world, then whatever faith you're following, it is not the God of the Bible. And so let me finish with this question. If the countdown has started, how does that need to change your life today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that despite our sin, despite our rejection of you, you sent in the Lord Jesus Christ, your only son, who was willing to be interrupted even to death on a cross, so that that great countdown would have no fear for us. But we pray that that wondrous rescue, that merciful grace, would move us to invest our life, our energy, our resources into doing all that we can to be a lifeboat for those who do not know you. 
May we invest the best of ourselves, the best of ourselves, to rescue the lost before it's too late. Amen.